do something a little different this morning. Um, this particular lesson would be more suited for December 25th. In all reality, it would be more suited for the last of September since that's when the Lord was born. But considering I want to, uh, I want to bring this out, a lot of times we use Luke, the second chapter, only around Christmas uh, when there's a lot more to Luke, the second chapter, verses 8 through 10, than just something about a, uh, a little thing that we do once a year called Christmas. And uh, again, I will be the first one to say one thing about December 25th, though we know it's not the Lord's birthday. We do know that it's nice to give gifts. It's nice to show love. And for nothing else than the fact that we acknowledge the birth of Jesus Christ and the fact that uh, we do uh, need to learn what love is all about and giving is love. Uh, God so loved the world that he gave, his only begotten son, whosoever believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So we're going to read... Luke, the second chapter, verses 8 through 20. Uh, before I do that, we're going to read Matthew 4.10 when it says this, Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Luke 2.8 through 20. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you was born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger." And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. Matthew 2.11 also says, And when they were came into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented to him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Turn and shake someone's hands and say, I want to be a loving Christian. All right, very good, very good. You know, when Jesus was born, the heavenly host, the Bible says, heralded his arrival to shepherds who were tending their flocks on the outskirts of town. Now, as soon as the angels had left, the shepherds hurried to Bethlehem to see the newborn king. They rejoiced, they glorified God, and what did they do? They spread the good news 
to everyone around them. Now, the heavens announced his arrival. Follow me. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doing December 25th. I'm going somewhere. The heavens announced his arrival to the nations as a bright light. His star alone in the sky, Matthew 2, 2. Now, that light could have been a special star that God created just for that purpose. But there was a book written one time, and if you haven't read got this book, you need to get it. Not mine, of course, but you need to get it. Ernest Martin suggests this in his book, The Star of Bethlehem. You ever read that one? Well, good, get that one. Uh, or the star that, and I'll borrow it from you, and the star that astonished the world. <laughs> I got a, you know, I heard tell one time that, you know, you're supposed to you get older, lose your memory, but mine's gotten sharper. I remember everything people have borrowed off of me through the years. <laughs> okay. <laughs> According to Martin, at least eight major conjunctions occurred during that time period. Again, that time period was the last of September. Okay. In which most scholars believe Jesus was born. And again, if you go back to the time period, that's where it comes to. Now, astronomical conjunctions occur when planets and stars, because of the differences, again, because of the differences in planet rotational patterns, uh, seem to merge or align when viewed from Earth. And this, what, what happens here is it creates an extremely bright light in the heavens. They just all line up, and you see one bright light. Now, regardless of whether this was a special one-of-a-kind star or a rarely occurring natural phenomena, a group of foreign astronomers. I, I, this has always hit me. You've got Israel, who've had all the Old Testament prophets who talked about the birth of the Messiah. They said where he was going to be born, how he was going to be born, all of this. But yet, you've got foreign astronomers who follow a star in the Bethlehem, to find him. Somebody from outside the flock, if you would, has to find the revelation. And it wasn't until the angels came down and talked to the shepherds that they picked up on this. You got that? You understand that? Why is it that we can't see the star or the light of this book? And that, and just forgive me, but that should be enough for any one of us. We should understand the light that is in the Bible rather than have to have a rhema, an individual word from God that point us in the right direction. You see, that's what we see here. We see where, where, where these, these men should have understand what the, the test, Old Testament prophets were saying, yet they couldn't until they were told. And yet we have these foreign astronomers who follow a light and are wise enough to know that that light was pointing to something. So in the case of apostolic people, I, and I made mention to this, uh, I believe it was Friday night, I, I made mention, we should never ever close our minds to the revelation or what we see in this book. If I see that I need to do it in this book, then I need to do it. And I should not close my mind to it. I don't need God to come down and say, Okay, Robertson, this is what you need to do when it's already written here. Why should I feel so special 
Or why should I feel that God has to do that for me? What makes you so special that God has to give you a rhema when I can read it right here and you will know? Or will you hear it preached or read to you? What makes us so special to think that God has to do that? I believe in rhemas. I believe in a spoken word of God. The rhema uh, is when God speaks to a person. The logos is when God has already had it written or it's recorded right here. That's the logos. That's Greek words. Now, now in, in as much as we have to understand that God does give us ramus, He does give us direction, He never gives it outside of what's already written in this book. When God tells you to do something and it's not recorded in this book in as much as it's a doctrinal thing or a principle, then, then you better be careful what you're listening to. But when it's in here, if God has to come down and give you some special word, there's something wrong with your relationship with God. And you need to be sure that that is changed. And, and you find out that I, I, I made a, I, I, was, I was praying yesterday and I, I thought about the last four years I feel like I've been, uh, I've had a kind of a, I've been set back, if you would, on what I was really seeking, God. I, I don't need, uh, and the older I get and the more I, I serve God, I, I don't need anything special. All I need from God is just more time with Him. I, I just want to get closer to Him. I want to feel, I, I, you know, my greatest desire to see an apostolic church, well, in order for me to see that, I feel like I need somehow, and let me just, just this is just the only way I can, I can put it to you, is to lean my head on the breast of Jesus and hear his heartbeat. That's what I feel like I want to do more than anything else right now. Because I feel like if I can get that, I can have more understanding than I've ever had before. I don't need the big deal. I don't, need to, I don't need to preach to the tens of thousands. I don't need to do that. What I need to do is to get so close that there's not hidden things. It's all here. But my understanding sometimes seems to not be as fruitful as it should be. So my desire in the last portion of my life is to somehow just get closer to God than I've ever gotten before. And if I could have understood this about 20 years ago, I'd probably be a lot further along. I hope you can understand what I'm talking about. Maybe I'm not communicating it correctly, but there is, there is that we keep looking for the big deal. I want someone to see me. I want someone to notice me. I want, what I want to, who I want to notice me is Jesus Christ. That's all. That's the only one I really want to notice. I, that's the only one that I want to, to know because and it's not because I'm special. It's just because I want to understand more about him. I want to be able to read this and have an understanding like I've never had before. Never letting go of what I've got, but going forward. And, 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 when I, I, and that's one reason I'm teaching this this morning is because I, I feel in my heart that somehow we, we take a passage of Scripture and we miss the meaning of what that Scripture is trying to tell us. We take this passage I just read to you and we put the Christmas story in it. It is a Christmas story, but there's so much more depth to that story than what we, uh, uh, we put into it. Now, you know, since, again, their prophets had told them the Messiah would be born of Bethlehem, these, those living in Jerusalem should have been among the first to recognize the signs of His coming. And it seems that they noticed nothing out of the ordinary until those traveling astronomers, the wise men, brought it to their attention. The majority of the people Jesus had come to save were unaware. He was, he was living among them until a group of outsiders looking for it, hungry for it, and, and, and they were, it, was, it was revealed to them 
because they were hungry for it, till they came in and told them what they were looking for. Now, as the wise men again resumed their search for the king, the star reappeared and led them to his house. The reappearance of this guiding light reassured them of his presence. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And Matthew 2.10, And when they entered the house and found him, they bowed before him. And what did they do? They gave him gifts. They worshipped him. So this every time, if we can understand that next December when you see the Christmas story, the drama, it's more than just something uh, that's done in December 25th. There's something deeper to it. And, and we're going to look at the who, you know, the worship one. Who did they worship? It's going to come up behind me here. Who did they worship? One of our favorite scriptures and one that, uh, that's, that's backed up by many, many, many scriptures is Deuteronomy 6 and 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is what? One Lord. One Lord. Who did they worship? They worshiped the one Lord. And that simple statement of Deuteronomy 6 and 4 is the foundation upon which all worship is born. It's all of it. All of it rests right there. And, and we could call this chapter Israel's primer on worship because it both defines who is to be the object of Israel's affection and it illustrates how worship is to be woven into every detail of your life, of everyday life. It was to be taught to the children from birth. They were taught. I've already started that with my grandson, Sawyer. You know, the first thing I told him when I got him, Hero is the Lord our God is one Lord. First thing I said to him, I try to say it every time I see him. I'm trying to get all the devils away from him immediately. So that's the first thing you do. And you know, the first couple of times he cried because you know how the, you know, you're born and shaping in iniquity and born in sin and all that. So we try to get that away from him immediately. But that's already, it works. And immediately, that, that's the, the, the first thing because that's what the Bible tells us to do. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. So it was to be woven into the very fabric of life. And, you know, the first thing in the morning, they were told. It was in their minds in the morning. And the last thing they pondered at night, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. They were to talk about it when they traveled and, where to and, 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 and were to discuss it while they ate. They were to weave God into the very fabric of everyday life. The 25 verses of Deuteronomy chapter 6 leaves no doubt that there is only one God and all of life is to revolve around that one God. When we understand that and we experience it, we do it, we, we weave it into our lives, our lives can turn around. Our lives can be better. We can be happier. We can feel peace. God can move in us and do things in us that we never thought was possible. When we really believe this, this is not something that's just traditional Pentecost. This is the very fabric of the universe. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. I believe it. I experience it. I love it. I live it every day. I teach it to my children. I get up in the morning in one God's name. I go to bed at night in one God's name. That's how I live. That's how I live. Jesus emphasized the importance of worship when he quoted the verse, verse 5 from Deuteronomy 6. And as he explained, explained it to the lawyers and Pharisees that the greatest commandment of all is to love God with all of one's heart and mind in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, And when the shepherds gathered around the manger the night of Jesus' birth, they were worshiping the one that Moses had told them to serve. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete 
in Him, according to Colossians 2, verse 9. When the wise men laid their gold, frankincense, and myrrh before Jesus, they were worshiping the Savior of the world. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby ye must be saved. Acts 4, 12. Listen to me. Today that same God remains as the object of our worship. Progress and advancement inject new ideas into our cultures, but the instructions of Moses still ring true. God is to be the center of everything that we do. It's whether it's Israel or whether it's His body, the church, God is to be the center. The one God, the name of that one God is Jesus, and we're to worship and love that name above everything else. Jesus Christ must remain at the center of all that we do, of all that we do. We must talk about Him when we get up each morning. We must acknowledge His provision at every meal. We, we, must, we must tell of His grace every evening. We must sing and talk and tell until worship becomes as natural to us as breathing. I've seen that this morning. I was so thankful because it was just, this just doesn't happen on Sunday mornings very often. But it was just like they came in with the breath of God on, on you. It was just that way. And when we begin to worship and then the wonderful singers begin to get into the anointing, it just transmitted from here to back there and people started responding to it because they love God. The people that run these aisles love God and they feel like, David, I feel like running through a troop and leaping over a wall. People that dance down front, they love God. They feel like dancing before the Lord. Why? Because it's a part of who they are. It's their life. It's their breath. It's everything to them. When do we worship? The law that God gave Moses called for a constant celebration and worship. A morning and evening sacrifice marked the beginning and the end of each day. Festivals signaled the end of harvest and the end of indentured service. Every new phase of life called for an offering or sacrifice. The highlight of their year was when Israel observed their annual celebration of deliverance from Egypt's bondage. Worship permeated every facet of their culture. Apostolics should have the reputation of being the most thankful people on the face of the earth. Do you know what you have? Do you understand what you've got? It should be stronger than any problem. It should be stronger than anything that tries to get your attention to anything that comes in your life. If you could ever put your problems, your difficulties, whatever you're enduring, if you could put it alongside of what you have in the Holy Ghost, it would seem so small. And your mind would begin to understand that this is nothing. I have got the king of the whole universe in my heart. I have got salvation. I've got an eternity in heaven to look forward to. Why should I be pulled down by these circumstances? Mm, That is so powerful when you begin to think. You should be the most thankful people on the face of the earth. It should be. You know... And that should be our reputation, not just a matter of being thankful, but everybody should know that we're thankful. We should be giving thanks at every turn. 
Our, our worship services should be joyful celebrations. The birth of our children, graduation days, marriages. And listen, folks, I, I still can't help but believe this. I know that we mourn, but when one, some of our elders go home, it still should be a celebration. I, it should be. It should be a celebration that saint of God have lived for so many years, gone through the battles. We should celebrate. They're free. They're at home. No more pain, no more death, no more sorrow. The old things are passed away. It should be something of celebration. You know, we, we should shroud, be shrouded with a garment of praise every place we go. And who should be more grateful than a spirit-filled, Jesus-named child of God? Who should be? Who should be? How can a person worship a loving and giving Lord any other way than with great celebration, worship, and gratitude? So every day should be filled, filled with gratitude. And, and how, how can we, who thrive in the abundant life that Jesus Christ gives, how can, we, uh, how can I live, how can we live any other way out of sight of living our lives reflecting His goodness? Our lives should always reflect the goodness of God. We shouldn't. We shouldn't be down. We shouldn't be sorrowful. We really shouldn't. I know what the Bible says, and I realize there's time of sorrow. I, I'm not, I, but they should be very, that's where the Bible says, uh, rejoice with them that rejoice, mourn with them that mourn. There is a mourning. Mourning is a part of life, and I realize that. But somewhere beyond the mourning should be the, the celebration. And because whatever it is that you may be mourning, things are going to be better. And we've got to look to that. That's why it says we mourn with them. Sometimes I need, I, I need that person to put his arm around me and remind me, look, you shouldn't mourn. This is how things, someone who's not into that, you know, they can say, I, I, I'm, I, I'm going to mourn with you, but we're going to mourn until we can get the victory over this morning, and we're going to get to the point where we begin to celebrate. That's what that's talking about. I believe they both work together. Rejoice with them that rejoice, mourn with them that mourn. Because somewhere mourning is going to be turning into rejoicing. Sometimes we just have to be reminded of just what we have. And it should be that praise and celebration just flow naturally from the heart of a true worshiper. It should be just natural. So then how do we worship? Worship is not a single act. Are you hearing me? That one can isolate from the rest of your life. try that again. I do not just come to church and do a single act of worship. Worship should be, and you've got to understand something, worship is more than dancing. Worship is more than running. Worship is more, and we're going to get there. And worship is more than raising our hands and, and singing, which is all a part of worship. But I should take worship. Worship is a lifestyle. It's not a single act. I go out of here worshiping. I spend tomorrow worshiping. I do it in different ways, but I still worship. Worship is simply letting God know that he is worth it. That's what worship means. He is worth it. So it should be a part of my life, not a single act. Worship is a lifestyle. And as Moses instructed the Israelites to use every daily activity to teach their children about God, so every daily activity should reflect our worship of God. 
Singing and praise is one aspect of worship. We use our bodies and our abilities to create melodies and lyrics and honor God and bring Him pleasure. We use the creative nature He gives us to praise Him, honoring Him for giving us creative abilities is also in itself an act of worship. We know from the Psalms and other Old Testament Scriptures that God loves music and singing and even joyful noises. Therefore, praising Him in this way becomes our worship. In addition... To prayers and songs we direct towards God, every decision we make reflects the degree of our devotion to God and His Word. Worship requires that obedience precede praise. To obey is better than sacrifice. What it says in 1 Samuel 15, 22. God is not interested in rituals performed for habit's sake. But he loves acts of praise that rise from the heart of those who obey his word. There is a purity of worship out of an obedient heart. We've all seen people worship, and I, you know, let everything that hath breath praise you, the Lord, and let them let people worship because it's leading them somewhere. But there's still something different when uh, people who don't know God worship, and when people who do know God worship. There's a purity of heart and spirit that goes along, a thankfulness, a gratefulness to God out of that pure heart. And, and there's just a feeling that, that comes into the congregation when a group of people begin to worship out of purity. And it's, it's something that's vital. So let's look at the worship just a little differently. And anybody ever read the book by Oswald Chambers, uh, his utmost, or I'm sorry, his utmost for his highest? Anybody ever read that? It's a good book got that one you don't get it okay you gotta love me you know that don't you? i know i've heard that i've heard about that saying my daddy you see one of these days i'll tell you about it so uh, <clears throat> okay oswald Chambers says worship is giving god the best that he has given you be careful what you do with the best you have be careful what you do with the best you have. Be careful. If you've got a really good book, you ought to loan it. Let's see, it's I'm I'm being down on myself now. <laughs> make me feel make me feel better. <laughs> if thoughtfully applied, this is powerful, powerful advice. And and if applied, this advice will actually give now hear me it will it will keep let me let me let me phrase it correctly it will keep worship vibrant and passionate within us it will inspire us to refuse to allow it to become a stagnant pool of habitual repetitive actions worship should be brand new every time we come into this place and into his gates with thanksgiving these courts with praise we should do that but it should not be a habitual, repetitive act. It should be from a pure heart. I come in, I walk into this place, I am grateful, I am thankful. I love God and I want Him to know I love Him. I don't care what anybody thinks about me. I don't care what anybody says about me. I'm just loving God. I'm not trying to get into your space. I'm just trying to get into His space. That's what this is all about. 
You know, while individuals perform much of their worship systematically and methodically, the expression of worship must continually flow from a person's life who loves God with all his heart, soul, and mind. John 4.23 says, But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. True expressions of worship begin with obedience to God's Word, but they also combine with the powerful influence of the Holy Ghost, which works in every believer's life. Peter wrote, Ye also, as lively stones are built up on a spiritual house and a holy priesthood, to offer up a spiritual sacrifice is acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 2, 5. Submission to God's word and to his spirit ensures that we that we give him our best. The Holy Ghost and the and the Holy Bible work together to create true worshipers who satisfy the Father's desire to be worshiped in spirit and in truth. So you worship him in spiritual worship but by and in the truth of God's word. That's how you worship. Worship should be expressions or these are expressions of worship but it should be again what I said earlier, a lifestyle. Submission In Paul's letter to the Romans, he explained how submission to the people that God has placed over us is submitting to God himself. And if we refuse to submit, we reject God's own authority over our lives, according to Romans 13, 1 and 2. Individuals who refuse to submit their lives to authority cannot worship God from a pure heart. And by refusing to submit to the authority God has placed over them, they attempt to worship on their own terms. Cain's story describes the ultimate fate of those who offer to to God everything except that for which he asked. Like Cain, they ultimately face separation from God's presence. And without submission to God's word and his authority, there can be no true worship. So, if you just decide that I'm going to go worship God once a month, then you're not being obedient. Okay? If I decide that I'm going to worship God, and forgive me for using this term, but this has happened in Bloomington, and not a Christian church, but a Unitarian Universalist assembly. And they were worshiping God by having strippers come down front. They had a great attendance of the men in Bloomington when they all came. <laughs> but this really did happen. It's been a few years ago, but this did happen. Now, you don't decide that that's your worship, okay? You worship in spirit and truth. No, Brother Manley, you cannot go over that. <laughs> I got him, didn't I? Look at that red face. (laughs) Now, I know I'll get it back. I know, I know. I couldn't help it. I just couldn't help it. But this really, you know, you just don't make decisions that this is how I'm going to do this. Or You have to worship in spirit and truth. Now, let's take each aspect of this. Let's break it down. Number one is church attendance. The Bible says in Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as a manner of some is, but exhorting one another as so much the more as you see that day approaching. The New International Version has a, and I, again, King James Version is the authorized version, but sometimes to put them side by side, and it gives you a little bit more understanding. The verse, uh, it says the verse this way, it says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. 
But let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see that day approaching. Meeting together for corporate worship is a vital part of God's plan for his people. We are his people, 1 Corinthians 12, and it is impossible for his body to function if each member exists in isolation. You can't. You can't. I've told this story before. It's a good story. Uh, I'm I'm trying to think of the uh, older preacher that did this. This was back in uh, in the 1800s. I think it was, uh, might have been Spurgeon or John Wesley. I'm not sure which one, but the story goes that uh, a gentleman got upset at church, and so he stayed at home. And they said that, uh, again, whichever it was Wesley or Spurgeon, whichever one it was, they said they went to his house, and he was sitting before the fireplace. And he said that he went in, and he said there was another chair beside this man, so he just sat down, and he was a rocking chair, and he just rocked for a few minutes. And he said he was watching the fire, and he said he took a poker fireplace, and he said he took one, one stick, pulled it out of the fire onto the hearth, and put it back and set back down. And he said they watched as that one stick began to get colder and colder and colder. Spurgeon then, again, if it was him, I can't remember, he got up, and the old guy looked at him, and he said, he said, that was a good message, preacher. He said, I'll be there next Sunday. And simply was saying this, you take one stick away from the fire, it's going to go out. You can't isolate. God never intended for when you got saved, he didn't have a bunch of islands in heaven. You get to go to your own island by yourself. Okay, that's not the that's not the way it's intended. That's why the you cannot you cannot not be at church, not forsaking assembling yourselves together. A lone individual cannot accomplish some aspects of praise and worship. You just can't. The heaven that God God's word describes is not again a collection of islands, each occupied by one redeemed believer. Rather, heaven is a city where the people of God will reside together. And likewise, true worship includes praising and working hand in hand with all of the Lord's redeemed. First Corinthians fourteen describes how the spiritual gifts are to be used in public worship. The fact that God made sure this was included in his word testifies to the importance he places on his people coming together for corporate worship and for the purpose of reaching out to those who are still lost in sin. And furthermore, the Great Commission, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, requires a group effort. God calls some believers for missionaries to evangelize faraway lands, while others become teachers, gifted in establishing strong disciples. Some individuals never feel compelled to leave their homes, but they find fulfillment in praying for the work. Now, now follow me. You know, I, I've often wondered, I, I, I've got this, let me teach this to some of our leadership. Uh, it's about Romans 12, and it's, just called, it's called the service gifts. And the service gifts, there's actually 99 of them when you break down all of Romans 12. And if those service gifts weren't in the body, we'd be in a mess. You can't, you know, not everybody's going to be called to be a preacher. Not everybody's going to be called to go to some faraway island or land somewhere. But there are those gifts of prayer. There are the gifts of helps. There was gifts, and, and this, this is something else. In Romans 12, it speaks of a gift of giving. Now, this is outside your normal support of the church through tithes and offerings. This is a gift of giving. I've often wondered if anybody would ever give in to that gift, how much God would prosper that person. Think about that. 
It was a gift of giving. And, and people have these. And, and if it wasn't for this, the churches couldn't. It was a uh, <laughs> uh, church I was at not too long ago. There was a, a lady there, and, and she came to the pastor afterwards. He, she was visiting, and he made mention, Lexi, come back. And she said this. She, her statement was, she said, oh, she said, I like to just go around from church to church and so forth. And, and uh, later on we were talking. <laughs> and I said, you know, I, said, I asked him, I said, what would you think if every saint felt that way? And he said, well, he said there wouldn't be any place for him to go to. <laughs> and it's true, there wouldn't be any churches. Because if somebody doesn't get in and see to it, then the assembly stays going. By their giving, by their prayers, by their attendance, there's no place for these uh, people to go to. <laughs> okay? And you hope that somewhere along the line, and normally when you hear someone like that, somehow along the line they've been hurt. Come on, folks. You get hurt no matter what. If you're out in the world, you get hurt. Were you when you were when you were a drug addict? Would you ever hurt? Okay. When I was a no cap bum, I was hurt all the time. The only difference is I got to hurt back then. Now I can't do that. <laughs> I don't want to do that. But you know, you, you you think about these people. But but it's it's all a part. Every part of the body has a place. It has a place. And sometimes we keep looking for the big deal. And it's not in the big deal. Oh. I, I sometimes I hate to use the term worry, but I worry about all the preachers going to heaven and thinking they're going to get the biggest gifts. When it's that person who didn't make a noise and was faithful for 50 years, God sets him up and said, this is what I wanted you to be like, not some politician. Uh, yeah, yeah. Mm. You know, our personal worship is incomplete without corporate involvement. The further, the closer we get to the coming of the Lord, the more we must make sure we remain committed to worshiping and serving together in the body of Christ. All right, let's look, at, let's look again. Number three, we talked about giving earlier, but we're going to talk directly to giving. Giving, both systematic and free will, remains an important part of worship. Both the desire to give and the command to give spring from the nature of God. God is love, 1 John 4. And God, is, uh, God so loved the world, and I, I said this earlier, that he gave. We quote these verses often to remind ourselves of God's love for us. When Paul was instructing the early believers on church finance, he reached back into the Old Testament and applied those principles to the New Testament church. Those things he wrote were written for our instruction. Look at 1 Corinthians 9.10. It'll come up here. Our, or saith he, it altogether for our sakes. For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he that ploweth should plow in hope, and that he that thresheth in hope should be a partaker. Now look at this, be a partaker of hope. And it's talking about the support of the ministry. These things, when you go forth, if you're a farmer, you go forth and you, you in fact, that whole chapter, if you go up to 1 Corinthians 9 read the whole chapter, it talks about going back into the Old Testament and bringing forth principles of giving. So a person who, who, who lives by the Word of God uh, or who preaches the Word of God should live off the Word of God. That's what it, that's saying. And it goes back to the Old Testament to get that principle. And again, the whole chapter uh, lets you see that. Now, as we remember what Oswald Chambers said about being careful with what we do with our, or I'm sorry, be careful what we do with our best, 
we may never or we should never forget that giving is part of worship. May we all give God our best, not just what is left over. The tithe was to be the best back when they brought the tithe of uh, the bullocks and, and the lambs and so forth. It was to be the best of the flock. It wasn't to be something because a person would be in trouble if they did something like that in the Old Testament. They'd get in a big mess. So it was the best. Let's look at the place of worship. Now, when Jesus was crucified, the veil in the temple was ripped from top to bottom, providing entrance to the Holy of Holies. Now, every person has access to the throne of heaven at any time. We do not reserve our praise only for Sundays. When we're inside the confines of our church building, singing and meditating on God's goodness, we should also be able to sing and meditate on God's goodness wherever we are. We should be able to wherever we are. You know, it's, you know, it's wherever we are is a good place to pray. Wherever we are is a good place to, to seek God. I like to, when it comes to prayer, I like to go different places. I, I am so non-traditional in the way I do things. I'm always afraid I'll be traditional, so I try to change up. A lot of times just to fool the devil. I think, you know, I come here and pray every day, and he'll get to meeting me here, so I've got to be sure he doesn't know I'm coming, so I'll, I'll take somewhere else. Now, you know, you can say what you want. You say, boy, Robertson, you're crazy. I am just a little bit, but it's okay. You know, it's the way I work. It's the way I understand things, okay? So I stay at home and I pray out in my office. You know, I get doing that quite a bit and I change up. I go up behind my house on the hill sometimes walk up on the hill and pray. You know, and then sometimes I go in the backyard. According to mosquitoes bad or how cold it is. You know, it's, it's whatever happens here. So, you know, you, you just do things. You change things up. Pray in the office. Pray down here. My favorite place is always down here. When Katie will let me and she's not denying her vacuuming or something, you know, I always feel bad if I'm trying, trying to pray and I hear the back door, you know, slam and then slam again. And slam. I know it's time to leave. <laughs> no, it's time to get out. So I, I have to get out and go do something different. There's all kinds of devils that come in different suits. <laughs> oh, man, I'll tell you what. I, I eat too many Wheaties this morning, I guess. I got brother man. I got all my musicians mad at me. I'm in trouble. <laughs> Just as worship again is not confined to church services on Sundays, neither are submission and obedience subject to time and place. Okay, holiness demands that we make a right choices regardless of where we are or who is watching. Worship is a lifestyle, not a simple act. Married people should act married even when their spouses are not present. Mm. Well, that's a good one. Mm. Yeah. The same rules for modesty apply whether a person is in Florida on vacation. Ah. The mall, the courtroom are here. All should be the same. All should be the same. Our worship is to God, and we cannot adjust it based on who sees us. New International Version translates 1 Peter 2 and 12 as this. Live, I like this one. I'll probably put this one down because you know, I'm, I'm big on pagans. Look at this. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. So, you know, it just tells you right there. No one knows for sure how many people saw the star that led the wise men to Jesus. No one can really say. 
how long that went on. Or, or could others have seen it if they had, had they been looking for it? You know, there again, did the star, was the star there, and could others have seen it, or could they have seen it if they were truly looking for the star? See, here's, here's the key. Personally, and I can't prove this, but personally, I believe the star was there for everybody to see. It's just that they weren't looking for it. And, and I wonder how many times there's nuggets that we see in here that we just go over. I mean, there's whole denominations that have been born because they, they looked at one thing but missed the star that was the next verse or the next chapter or how God even dealt with them personally, the conviction they felt when they did read it. You know, sometimes that conviction is a, a star of guidance. When you know that I need to do this, I need to live according to that Scripture. But we just fail to do so because we don't want to see it. We don't want to see it. That was a debate going on one time. Um, I was trying to think of who it was. I, I heard it. And uh, the man that was debating, one of our ministers, uh, made the statement. He was the, the, the uh, apostolic minister was the one who was in the lead of this particular uh, segment of the, of the debate. And he was, he was going through the book of Acts. And when it was uh, a time for the other minister to come in and refute what he had said, the first thing that came out of his mouth was this. He said, I wish I could just take the book of Acts and tear it out of the Bible. Yeah, you heard that? Yeah. I, yeah, it's, it's, I wish I could just tear it out of the Bible. Now, that would be like the wise men saying, I wish I could just shoot the star out of the sky. You can't change the fact. This is already settled in heaven, and you've got to be sure that you have done everything according to what this says. So, you know, could they have seen it? I don't know. And the very simple fact that these wise men grasped the significance of the star, whether others would have seen it or not, would they have grasped the significance of it, what it really meant? These men were looking for something. We all constantly ought to be looking for more truth. I, I believe all of us should. To the wise men, the light was a call to worship, and wherever it led them, and whatever the cost, they were determined to make the journey. They were committed to worship. They were not seeking political gain. They weren't uh, interested in power struggles. They used their skill and knowledge to seek God, and they followed wherever the light led them. They were committed to worship. That, that's the key. They knew that star led to the king of the universe, and they, they were going to go, and they were going to worship him regardless of what it cost them, regardless of what they ran into. They were going to follow that star because they wanted to worship. They wanted to worship. Shepherds were probably were not as well educated or as wealthy as the wise men, but their worship was just as valuable, just as valuable. The wise men found Jesus through the efforts of their work, astronomy, while the shepherds heard about him through his spiritual experience with angels. And neither the angels nor the star brought Jesus to the men, but both groups of men had to leave where they were and go where they were directed in order to see him. That's vital. They were directed to go. They didn't bring Jesus. So many people, well, I want to bring Jesus to my house. Turn on TBN, there he is. Just keep one thing in mind. 
Be sure and call that TBN preacher when it's time for your funeral or somebody to marry you. I'm sure he'll come and take care of it. That's good preaching. You're being mean, Robertson. Best I can do. I'm sorry. I can't help it. Both groups had to leave and go to where he was. Biblical disciples. The New Testament paints a panorama of, of worship. John the Baptist offered a selfless service. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is, a, this is the attitude of real, real worshipers. These are true biblical disciples. Now, now follow this. You know, when you ever really look at this, you know, this is what John the Baptist, what kind of man of God was he when he, can you, can you really grasp that? He said, I must decrease so that he can increase. He got to preach for six months. He was under a Nazarite vow. And he got to preach six months. His whole life was a life of dedication so that all he got to do was six months. If I told some of the preachers around here that all you're going to get to do was for six months, they'd all give up. Wouldn't even start. I'm sorry, brethren. Probably when I was younger, if I'd known this. Well, no, I won't say that. I won't say that. But you know, a lot of them are that way. But here is a man so dedicated that even though he was under the vow and under the stipulations of the vow, and yet knowing six months I'm preaching, i got to decrease, he's got to increase. Gave his head. Gave his head. That's one, you know. And then you got to, you know, the Lord called Mary to be the mother of Jesus and and though she was poor, she declared, Generation shall call me blessed in Luke one forty eight. She was just a poor woman. And yet she said, Generation's going to call me blessed. What kind of discipleship is that? And in Simeon both spent a lifetime of service in the temple. Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Luke 2.29 They didn't care now if they even lived any longer. They had lived their whole life working in the temple just for the moment to see Jesus. And now they said, I'm ready to die. Paul was five times beaten with 40 stripes. He was caned three times, stoned and shipwrecked three times. Yet he concluded his life saying, I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. <laughs> How many of us could be beaten shipwrecked, stoned, and then say, I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. And because of his faith in Jesus, the authorities banished John to live alone on an island prison, yet he wrote, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day in Revelations 1.11. So though he was banished on an island full of goats, not ghosts, goats, bad goats, okay, you know, that's all that island was. And you said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. He didn't have any church to go to. He had, a, he had a, a stony, nasty island that he was on, banished there. He'd been boiling oil already at this time. I would imagine he was a little bit scarred, don't you? You can imagine being boiled in oil and the scar tissue that would be on there and how even sweating would make that painful. I mean, maybe God healed him, but I have a feeling he didn't. I got a feeling he carried that, a reminder. But he said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. 
Just as the worship of the wise men and the shepherds brought them into the presence of the Lord, these other believers worshiped God with their words and their lives. Their worship forged a relationship between them and God, a relationship that was stronger than their own love of life. They could endure anything and find Him present in all things. The call to worship still echoes today. Jesus' invitation remains valid. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door... I will come in and I will sup with him and he with me. Jesus knocks at the door to our lives and worship opens the door. Do you realize that? Everything good that can come from God, it all begins with worship and love. Not just one time, not just on Wednesdays and Sunday mornings and Sunday nights, but a lifestyle of worship where you're thankful to God, where you're blessing God, where you're honoring God in everything that you do. All of it said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And it's open with worship. And like the wise man, sometimes we have to leave places that are comfortable. Things that we've always done. What could happen if I could just step out? Many of us can, uh, uh, can remember this uh, in your own life. The first time that you came to an altar. You remember how long it looked from back there to here even if you were in the front pew. Just stepping out. But when you took that one step out of that pew, it seemed like you don't even remember the rest of the trip. You were just there. It took that effort on your part. That's what worship is. Sometimes it's just flowing and pushing myself beyond me to get into what real worship is, and then doors begin to fly open. That's true worship. Let's stand. Let's come tonight. Let's come tonight early to pray. Men did a great job last Sunday in the prayer room. I think if I remember, 21 or 22, weren't they? So please continue that. Continue that. And uh, let's just see what God will do for us tonight. Let's see. Let's come in with an attitude of worship. Don't, don't do this for me tonight. Walk in. Now, we just talked about corporate worship, all of us together. But let's take, you know, I'm, I'm teaching about how to develop personality. But let's take personalities out of the equation tonight. Let's pull personalities out. It doesn't matter what she does or he does or they do. You're coming in with one thing, and that's a focus on Jesus Christ. That's all I'm focusing on. I'm focusing on him, and I'm coming. I don't care who's behind me, who's in front of me, who cares and who doesn't care. I'm going to come to worship. Worship. And if you get too loud and it's time for, uh, for me or Brother Fox, to pray, Brother Fox to preach, I'll tell you, just tone it down to 40 decibels and we'll go on and preach. But let's just worship. Okay, let's come and worship. Sometimes we can get loud and we can run the aisles and we can develop into something that, that, is, that is, you just melt in God's presence. You ever been there? You ever just melted? I, that's the best way of putting it. It's just, just a, you don't feel like there's any bone structure. You just melt in His presence. You go someplace. That's where you encounter the deep things of God. Where I, and, and literally one time in worship, uh, I remember I was worshiping. I was in a prayer room by myself, but I was worshiping and uh, you, again, it's okay if you think I'm a little crazy. Fine, I don't care. But it was like I, and my best thing, you know, because I got an imagination, but it literally felt like I was going into a black hole. 
Not a bad thing. It was one of those upward places, you know, going up. And I could feel myself swirling through it. And I got to the place where I heard nothing, felt nothing but a warmth of God's presence. And, you know, to this day, I can't tell you how long I was in that place. But it was just, I don't know whether I was making noise or not making noise. I don't know. But I went up, but it was worship. I had been praying. I had been doing this for some time. And I just went into that place. And to this day, it still stays with me. You know, I'll never forget that. I don't think I've ever been able to do it since. I've tried. I've tried. I, I don't know what was right at that time and what's not been, but, but it changes you. It makes you want to seek and, and be closer to God than ever before. That's what true worship is all about. Let's raise our hands to the Lord. Father, we thank you for your blessings, your goodness, your mercy. And God, I ask that you bless each and every one. Be with them this day. Strengthen them in every way I ask now. In Jesus' name, amen. All the deacons need to go back to my office.